This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Eight-year-old Yara comes to Sweden as a refugee without her parents. She is placed in the care of her uncle and his wife, who had just recently fled to Sweden themselves. But what was supposed to be a safe place for Yara to grow up in turns out to be the exact opposite. The uncle's home is not suitable for children at all. And the uncle's wife turns out to be a child abuser of the worst kind. Yara's last 14 months alive is a living nightmare. And everyone fails her. The school, the system, and her own family. This is Yara Al-Nahar's story. Welcome to episode 15 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla, and I've seen we have a lot of new listeners, so an extra special welcome to all of you. If you haven't listened to the first episode where I talk a little bit about me and my English, let me just repeat that to give you understanding of where I'm coming from. My native language is Swedish, and I'm really, really good at Swedish. You have to take my word on that. Just kidding. But what I'm trying to say is that when we are taught English in school here in Sweden, we are taught British English. And to make my English accent even more confusing, I went to the US and spent a year in Iowa as an exchange student. So my English today is a mix of tomatoes and tomatoes. That's just the way it is. I hope you are able to understand me anyway. Today's case is researched and written by Johanna Udstol Friberg. Thank you so much for helping me out, Johanna. And about at the same time as this episode comes out, I'm also going to release the first Patreon-only episode. That episode is about the real Red Wedding. If you're into Game of Thrones, you probably remember the Red Wedding. But what you are going to hear on this Patreons-only episode is a story that inspired George R. Martin to do the Red Wedding in the Game of Thrones. So don't miss it. And before we start this episode, I just want to add a warning. I know I have a disclaimer in the beginning of the show. But today, I want to give you another warning. This is a horrible case about a nine-year-old girl who was beaten to death by her legal guardians. It's a very disturbing case and might not be suitable for all listeners. With that said, 
And if you're still here, let's get into the case. It all started in Syria in 2006 when Yara was born. Her mother and father were Madeline and Mohammed Al-Nahar. Yara was a beautiful brown-eyed girl with thick curly black hair. She always had a smile on her face and enjoyed playing with her two little siblings when she wasn't spending time with her friends. The family led a quiet life but in 2011, this all changed. Following the wave of the Arab Spring protests in 2011, Syria entered a civil war on March 15th. The unrest grew out of discontent with the Assad government and escalated to an armed conflict after protests calling for his removal were violently suppressed. Yara her parents and two siblings, immediately fled to the nearby Gaza Strip. Gaza is a self-governing Palestinian territory on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea that borders Egypt on the southwest for 11 kilometers, that's about 6.8 miles, and Israel on the east and north along a 51-kilometer border. 51 kilometers is about 32 miles. Gaza and the West Bank are claimed by the state of Palestine. They settled in Gaza, and Yara was entering a local school. After about a year, the war caught up on them in their new hometown. One morning, when Yara and her father were going to school, they saw the school building being blown up by a bomb they were riding in their car about 60 meters or 65 yards from the school building. After this incident, Yara was never the same again. She was six years old and did not cope well with the situation. She was afraid to go to sleep, afraid to wake up, afraid to talk to anybody or make eye contact with her family. She wet her bed every night and became depressed. Her parents were very concerned and worried about her. They took her to a doctor and he said Yara needed to get away from the war in order to heal her mental wounds. It was at this time her parents got an offer they couldn't refuse. Yara's uncle, Rami, Madeline's younger brother, offered to take Yara to Sweden. The two families had fled to Gaza together. The uncle worked for a government agency in Gaza, but when the opposing party, Hamas, got the power, he felt forced to leave the country to protect his life. Rami and his wife, Amani, and their two-year-old son fled to Karlskrona in Sweden on July 20th, 2012. When they learned that Yara was not feeling well, they offered to take her in. 
Yara's mother, Madeleine, was very close to her brother's wife, Amani, when they all lived together in Syria and Gaza. I couldn't believe our luck, Madeleine later says to reporters. Rami and Amani offered to take care of Yara in Sweden. It was like a dream come true. Yara's parents started to plan for her escape. They paid a man to bring Yara out of Gaza and all the way to the south of Sweden. On Tuesday, February 5th, 2013, about six months after her uncle and his family entered Sweden, the seven-year-old Yara was standing on Swedish soil. Her uncle picked her up and they went to Karlskrona together. Yara seeks asylum in Sweden on Friday, February 7, 2013, and the social services of Karlskrona is quickly involved because of her young age. They start an investigation to assess whether Yara's uncle is an appropriate legal guardian for her or not. On February 22nd, they visit their home to talk to Yara, the uncle, and to his wife, Amani. The social worker writes a note in her file that Yara seems very apathetic and withdrawn, but they take no further action. Instead, they approve the uncle and aunt as legal guardians. Yara started second grade in a school called Tullskolan. She was very shy at first and kept herself most of the time. But as she learned a little Swedish and got to know her classmates better, she slowly adjusted to her new life. A teacher later described her as very smart and a fast learner. The same teacher also said Yara was almost apathetic when she first came to Tullskolan. She would draw pictures of airplanes, bombs, and people who lay bleeding on the ground. Three weeks later, on March 8, 2013, the first notification of concern is brought to the social services of Karlskrona. A neighbor finds Yara and the two-year-old home alone after she had come home from school that afternoon. The children were not capable of taking care of themselves. The youngest was wearing a very dirty diaper, and the apartment was very messy and untidy. The home was so miserable that the neighbor called the police, who came to the apartment, and they then called the social services to step in. When Rami and Amani comes home, they find the police and two social workers in their apartment. They both have a reasonable explanation to why they have left the children without adult supervision, and the social workers buy it. This is the first mistake by the social services, and the investigation following the murder of Yara uncovers a tragic story of mismanagement of this case. And a little side note here for me. I don't know what that explanation would have been to leave a seven-year-old alone with a two-year-old. That's just not acceptable. Back to the case. A month later, on April 9th, 
2013, Amani gives birth to a baby boy. The social worker involved in the incident of the previous month makes a house call to make sure everything is working out. This lady finds nothing out of the ordinary, and the case is closed on June 12th without talking to Yara's teacher or other adults near her. I just want to put in another little side note here. When you have a child in Sweden, you are given a pediatric nurse as a contact after the birth. That nurse always make a house call the first time you meet. This has two reasons. First of all, you don't have to go anywhere when you have a newborn baby in the house. The nurse comes to you. And second of all, the nurse gets to see that the child is in a safe environment and that the house or apartment is a suitable place for children. This is done whether you have had any contact with the social services before or not. A nurse came home to my place when I had my first girl 17 years ago, and I really think it's a good thing. Sorry about that. Back to the story again. The family moves to a bigger apartment in the summer, and the final documents declaring Rami and Amani legal guardians are signed on August 12th the same year. Later that fall, another person files a notification of concern to the social services. A copy of the concern is sent to Yara's school principal. The anonymous notifier says the girl is going to school alone and she is not wearing clothes suited for the colder weather of the season. Another notification is filed by a neighbor in the end of November. She finds the two-year-old playing in the elevator of the apartment building and helps him back to his home. When she enters the hallway, she finds Yara taking care of the newborn baby all by herself. Again, police and social workers are sent to the apartment. No written statement of this incident can be found in the public records afterwards. No actions are taken to investigate if this is a home fit for a traumatized little eight-year-old girl alone in a foreign country without her parents. A year after Yara came to Sweden, in February of 2014, the school notices that Yara is not coming to school as much as she used to. Two of her teachers go to her home in March to find out why she's not going to school. Just a quick side note. There is compulsory education in Sweden, which means all children between the ages 7 and 16 must go to school. This is the law, and schools are forced to investigate if children are not going to school. 
When they came to Yara's apartment to check up on her, they were not allowed to see Yara because Amani claimed she was sick with the flu. But both Amani and Rami said that everything was fine. The school principal makes a call to the social services about Yara's poor attendance in school, and they respond that they have the situation under control. In fact, they say there is no open file on Yara, and everything is great. When Yara comes back to school, she says to her teacher that she is doing fine. But she thought her mom would have come to Sweden by now, and that is making her sad. Both her teachers and the principal are very involved in Yara's well-being, and they try their best to help her when she's in school. Because of her seemingly poor health, and her complaints about stomach ache, she is sent to the school nurse. She measures her height and weight and finds that her BMI has decreased from 14.1 to 13.5 in the past year. BMI stands for Body Mass Index, and a BMI of 18 is considered normal. Below 16 means you should be under medical observation, and under 13, you should be in a wheelchair. But no actions were taken. The teachers are becoming more and more worried about Yara, but they don't know what more they can do to help her. Their principal has called the social services and the teachers stay in touch with Rami and Amani regularly. On April 18, 2014, a neighbor calls the police and is worried about Yara. They suspect that she is being beaten by her parents. The neighbor says he has seen the girl in the building or in the elevator, and she has bruises on her arms and legs. The police calls another resident in the building, and this person has a similar opinion on the state of this little girl. There's always noise and yelling coming from the apartment. The police then files a report and sends a copy to the social services. This copy is sent by fax, and no one in the social services office checks the incoming faxes that week. So they did not know what the police had found out. How hard is it to pick up a phone? I'm sorry, that's my own comment. A week later, Yara's teachers are so worried they got in touch with her uncle Rami and asked him to take Yara to the doctors. Rami says that they are going away on a trip very soon, and that will cheer her up. No need for any medical attention. He asks the teacher for more time off from school, and then says goodbye. Yara comes back to school a week later, on April 29th. She is very tired and falls asleep in class. She tells the teacher 
that she has been sleeping in another country, that they have been sleeping outdoors in another city. What had actually happened is that the family had gone to the city of Landskrona to visit some family. Going back to Karlskrona from Landskrona, the train was late, so Yara had to sleep on the train station. The teacher then asks her if she likes her uncle and aunt, and Yara says that she does. One of the teachers offers to give her a ride home from school later that day, and Yara says yes. But when they enter the elevator, Yara says bye-bye and leaves the teacher on the ground floor. The day after is Yara's last day on earth. Wednesday, April 30th, 2014 is a beautiful and sunny but cold spring day. A teacher notices Yara wearing very light clothes and she seems to be cold. So the teacher lends her his coat. When school ends at about 1.30, Yara says she doesn't want to go home. What I am about to say now is very disturbing. So please skip ahead if you don't want to hear any details. At 10 p.m. that night, Yara's aunt, Amani, placed a 112 call asking for an ambulance to their home. The paramedics enter the apartment and immediately call the police for backup. Yara is laying on the living room couch. She is not breathing and she has no pulse. They try to place an IV in the bend of her arm, but both her arms are broken, so they can't get it to work. Instead, they wanted to place the IV on one of her legs, so they cut her pajamas open and see her left leg broken and the bone sticking out below her knee. When one of the paramedics Let's call him Peter. When he later tells the court about this day, he had to take many breaks to calm himself down. It started with him breaking into tears when the judge asked him to explain what the apartment looked like when he entered it. After a long pause, he said he has been working for 35 years and this was the worst he had ever seen. When heard in court, Rami said that he had been at work earlier that day and then picked up his oldest son and went fishing with him. They got back home at about 2 p.m. and Rami noticed that Yara did not seem to be feeling well. He asked her how she was feeling, but she did not respond. 
Dami then went to the grocery store to buy some food to go with the fish he had caught earlier that day. When he got back home about half an hour later, he asked Yara if she wanted to eat, but she said no and went into her room to go to sleep. Yara did not have a proper bed in her room. Instead, there was a mattress laid out on the floor for her to sleep on. Amani, the foster mother, was talking to Yara's mother, Madeleine, on Skype later that night. Madeleine asked to talk to Yara, but Amani said she was sleeping and didn't want to be disturbed. This happened a lot, according to the later statements by Yara's parents. They would call the couple on Skype, but they didn't get to speak to their daughter for various different reasons. One time they noticed a bruise on Yara's arm, but Amani said she was heard in school playing with the other children. Back to that night. Rami, the father, took a nap in the master bedroom after supper, but woke up later that evening to go have a cigarette in the living room. He then sees Amani entering the room with a rolling pin, and he understands that there will be trouble between her and Yara again. His first instinct is to tell his wife that Yara is not feeling well and that she should be left alone. But instead, he says to Amani that she should put the rolling pin down and go take a shower or a relaxing bath. She doesn't listen to him, and she goes into Yara's bedroom, where she is still laying on the mattress, resting. Amani tells Yara to clean her room, but the eight-year-old is complaining about stomach ache and that she is too tired to get up. Rame is still standing in the living room and he notices how Amani closes the door behind her after entering Yara's room with a rolling pin and an electric cord in her hands. Yara's bedroom is next to the living room and while Rami is in the living room together with the two younger sons, he can hear Yara screaming, That's enough! That's enough! When Amani comes out of the bedroom, she says to Rami that she has now disciplined the girl. Rami then goes to check up on Yara, and sees that the girl is breathing with difficulty. He turns to his wife and asks her what she has done to Yara. Amani says that Yara is impossible to handle, that she makes her crazy, and that she needs to be disciplined. When they realize that Yara is not waking up, they bring her to the bathroom and place her in the bathtub and shower her face and neck with water to wake her up. Amani is taking the lead in the shower and Rami gets his phone to shoot a video of this tragedy. He later says that he didn't want to get blamed for what happened to Yara, so he needed proof 
and he also claims that he tried to convince Amani to call an ambulance at this stage. The video shows Amina holding the lifeless Yara in the shower and Rami patting her on the cheeks to get a response. The younger kids are seen walking in and out of the picture while all of this is going on. Rami is heard saying, Who does something like this? Who beats an eight-year-old like this? Amani, the foster mother, wouldn't let Rami place the 112 call. Instead, she made him commit to the story she would hold him to all through the court hearings. The story of how Yara came from school between four and five and that she was not feeling well and went straight to bed. And when they later realized that she was unconscious, they called an ambulance. Even when Amani was faced with the evidence of her fingerprints on the rolling pin and the blood spatter, she wouldn't admit to any violence ever taking place in their home. At last, Amani called 112 and had an ambulance come to the apartment. Peter, the paramedic, said in court that when he first arrived in the apartment building, Rami showed him where Yara was lying on the living room couch. The uncle then starts to shake her, as if he was trying to wake her up. Peter tells him to move aside, and they immediately start to try to save the little girl's life. He opens the pajama top, and he almost faints when he sees the injuries to her little body. Yara is quickly taken to the emergency room in Karlskrona Hospital, and they continue trying to resuscitate her. But she has probably been dead for hours by the time they enter the ER. In her autopsy, the pathologist notes 255 injuries. 18 of them are fractures, including two broken ribs, and all five fingers on her right hand were broken. Yara's head has marks of at least 33 strikes. Her left arm has had at least 17 beatings. The skin was torn off where the pin had hit her skin. There were no signs of sexual violence. The pathologist also found evidence of old injuries. Yara had been beaten on at least three separate occasions. She had bite marks, burn marks, and scratches all over her body. And the list just goes on and on. The amount of suffering that this little eight-year-old girl had to endure is impossible to take in.
The crime scene investigation showed that Yara was indeed beaten with a wooden rolling pin. She was also hurt with an electric cord. In the bedroom wardrobe, where Yara is believed to have been trying to hide, they found blood spatter and hair, and the blood pattern reveals that at least eight hard beatings must have occurred in the wardrobe. The cause of death was suffocation. It is believed that Yara had endured so much beating that fat cells in her body had been released into her blood vessels, and when those reached her lungs and heart, she suffered a cardiac arrest. The police held a press conference with representatives from the social services and the school board in Karlskrona the day after Yara's murder. Everyone was looking for answers. How could this possibly happen in Sweden? A child who was escaping the horrors of war in the Middle East, only to be killed by her guardians in Sweden. Both the manager of the social services and the school board blamed the principal for neglecting to take action and the board suspended him from his job the following day. The problem was that the school had done everything within their jurisdiction to help Yara. They had followed protocol and informed the social services of their findings. The press conference and blame game had devastating consequences for the principal. He tried to commit suicide two months later on Midsummer Eve. I will get back to this a little later in the story. When Amina, the foster mother, was taken into custody, she did not admit to anything. She said Yara must have hurt herself before she came home that afternoon and that she went to sleep on the couch where the paramedics found her. But Yara's hands were so badly beaten that she wasn't physically able to undress herself and put on the pajamas that she was found in. Yara's mother and father learned what happened to their daughter two days after Yara had died. A woman contacted them on Facebook Messenger and told them about the tragedy. Yara's father, Mohammed, applied for a temporary visa, and by the time it was time for her funeral a month later, he landed in Sweden. Mohammed was later granted permanent residency in Sweden, and in November the same year, his wife, Madeleine, and Yara's two siblings were reunited. Madeleine later tells the court that she at first thought Yara was being cared for properly by her brother and his wife. One of the first warning signs she noticed was the fact that Yara had to walk alone to and from school. Madeleine did not like that at all, and she made Rami promise that he would follow Yara to school. And as far as she knew, Rami had kept his promise to her. 
Yara's mother also states that she had noticed something was wrong about two months before her death. Yara's eyes were so sad, she said. But when she asked Rami or Amani what was going on, they just said Yara had some problems in school. Yara's father, Mohammed, didn't talk to Yara on Skype as much as Madeline did. But he states to the court that he had become more and more annoyed by Amani's behavior around his daughter. When he would call Yara, Amani would speak loudly and scream in the background. One of Yara's 11-year-old friends from school testified in court. She said Yara had confided in her and told her that she was beaten at home and that her parents used to let out cigarettes on her. When Yara told this to her friend, she showed her leg where a burn mark was clearly visible. The friend was scared and said they must tell an adult about it. But Yara was afraid. She had been told by Rami and Amani that they would beat her if she told anyone what was going on in their house. This just breaks my heart. Yara was so young and so innocent. How can a person do something like this? And folks, tell your kids that whatever it is they get to know from a friend or something at school, it's always okay to tell your parents about it. The foster mother, Amani Madi, 31 years old, was sentenced to life imprisonment without admitting to anything. Her husband Rami Ashur was sentenced to six years in prison, but after an appeal, his sentencing went up to 14 years in prison, and her life sentence still stands. The court reasoned that even if Rami did not cause her death, by beating her. He was still accountable for not protecting her from harm as her guardian. The court had Amani's mental state evaluated and found that she lacks empathy and that she has no ability to understand other people's emotions. But she was not found mentally ill and she was sent off to prison. During her first months of incarceration, her mental health quickly deteriorated and she had to be sent to a mental institution for a couple of months. One can only hope that she started to realize what she had done. The couple's two children, the two boys, are taken care of by authorities and despite Amani's efforts to be granted visiting rights, the court has said a definite no to all further contact with them. To wrap this up, I would like to tell you about the principal who was blamed for Yara's death. Following the killing, he was suspended from his job and fell into a deep depression. He was a pillar of the local community, coaching children's ice hockey 
and standing up for children's rights as principal of the local school. In his mind, he had done everything he could possibly do for Yara, and yet he was treated like dirt by the authorities who were trying to cover up their mistakes. Six weeks after Yara's death, on Midsummer Eve, when most Swedes drink and go to parties, the principal was so devastated by guilt and depression that he decided to end his life. Without telling anyone, he got into his car and drove off. When he had left the populated area of his neighborhood, he speeded the car up and turned the wheel straight into the woods. The crash was inevitable. When he came into the hospital, no one thought he was going to survive. He had massive brain injuries and was in a coma. One and a half years after the accident, he now lives in his own apartment with assistance around the clock. He can sit in a wheelchair, but he can't speak or eat by himself. He works hard to regain some of his old skills, but only time will tell if he will recover fully. Yara's case was reported to Inspektionen för vård och omsorg, IVO. It's a, like the Health and Social Care Inspectorate or something like that. It was reported there to investigate how the social security system could fail so miserably. IVO is a government agency responsible for supervising health care and social services. Its supervision covers the processing of complaints concerning, for example, the reporting of irregularities in health care and social care, called Lex Sara and Lex Maria reports. They worked for months on Yara's case and finally concluded that the lack of proper routines within the social services of Karlskrona regarding how to respond to notices of concern was the main cause of this tragedy. A lot of people were deeply affected by Jara's death in Sweden. In 2015, the well-known Swedish heavy metal band Mustache or Mustache released a song about Jara called Jara's Song. You can find it on YouTube. Just search for Yara's song. Yara is spelled with a Y. I will also put a link to the song in the show notes. It has 336,000 views to this date. And it also has a really gripping video to it. I really recommend that you watch it. Thank you so much for listening to today's case about Yara. The case was researched and written by Johanna Ulstol Friberg. 
You did a great job as always, Johanna. Thank you so much. And before we get into this episode's fun fact about Sweden, I want to thank the following new patrons. Thanks to Lana13, Meredith D, Natalie B, Dahlia D, Connie and Sean Young, Nicola G, and Angeline L. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It means so much to me. I really want to do something nice for Johanna for helping me out with the episodes. And you guys are taking me a step closer to that. Thank you. And don't miss the Patreons only episode that will be out at about the same time as this episode. It's about the real red wedding. And thank you also to the following people who left me five-star reviews on iTunes. Thank you to Gina Dinixi, Cool Me, Belle Evita, I Like Podcast 1234, Sticky Rat, L.A. Dinah, Bumping Uglies, Middle-Aged Mom, and 907JW, all from the U.S. And thank you to Gromis from Norway. You guys made my day. Thank you so much. If you want to reach me, I'm all over social media. Just search for True Crime Sweden on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Or ask to join the True Crime Sweden Facebook discussion group. We'd love to see you there. You can also email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. Well, enough of the business, and let's talk about the Swedish fun fact. Today, it's about the weird and wonderful Swedish tradition called Midsummer. Midsummer is celebrated every year on a Friday between the 19th and 25th of June. In 2018, it's on June 22nd, and it's a big deal to all Swedes. To be honest, it's way more important than June 6th which is our national day, kind of our 4th of July, if you wish. Midsummer is way more important to the Swedish people. A lot of Swedes start their four to five week vacation with Midsummer weekend, and most people leave the cities to go celebrate somewhere out on the countryside. Some people say that you can only experience a real Midsummer if you go to the province of Dalarna, you know, where the dollar horse is from and where Fallen is that I talked about in previous episodes. And I kind of agree. Dalarna is a wonderful place to celebrate midsummer. And that is where I'm going myself this year. From the beginning, this was a celebration to welcome the summer and the season of fertility. The tradition of rising maples can be seen as far back as the 1500s. We still rise a maple, or a midsommarstång, as it's called here in Sweden. I actually found out when researching this that the old name maple, or majstång, as we used to call it here in Sweden, and I guess some people still call it a majstång, that name has nothing to do with the month of May, as one might think. 
It comes from the word maya, that means decorate with leaves. And I assure you, I had no idea about this when I named my youngest girl Maya. But I guess I could decorate her with some leaves on Midsummer too. I don't know if she would like it though. To decorate the maple, we cut off thin branches of birch and twin them around the pole until it's all covered and green. And then we make two large writs also with birch in the bottom, but also covered in summer flowers, such as daisies and summer cups, among many others, that I couldn't find a good translation on. Sorry about that. But blue, white, and yellow flowers are the most common. In a lot of places, they also make a long snake-like thing of flowers, which is then wrapped around the whole maypole. The tradition is that people make everything ready on the maypole before midday, and then the maypole is risen when everyone is gathered, like a start of the celebrations. And after it is risen, we dance around it. Kids and grown up in a large ring around the maypole. We sing songs like Små grodorna, which is translated to the small frogs. And it's the silliest song you ever heard, but everyone in Sweden knows it, and it's a big tradition on Midsummer. If you try to translate it, it goes something like this. The small frogs, the small frogs are funny to watch. The small frogs, the small frogs are funny to watch. They have no ears, they have no ears, and they don't have a tail. They have no ears, they have no ears, and they don't have a tail. I'm sorry for trying to sing to you. Just send me your therapy bills later. But during this song, when the phrase, they have no ears, comes... Everyone waves their hands next to their ears, and when and they don't have a tail comes, you put your hands where the tail would have been. And then when the kawakaka starts, everyone bends their knees and jump both feet at the same time in a forward motion, trying to look like frogs. It must be so confusing for someone celebrating midsummer in Sweden for the first time. So, what do we eat during midsummer? The small new potatoes with almost no peel is a must on the midsummer table. A lot of people put some fresh dill in the water while boiling them. And then we eat pickled herring in different sauces. With that, there is sour cream, chives, and of course, the schnapps. Or it's more like a small shot of vodka with a weird herb flavor to it. Can you tell I don't like the schnapps thing at all? And of course, with that we sing the almost famous schnapps song, Helan Gård. I'm gonna be nice to your ears by not singing again, but they made a fun translation thing on the schnapps song, Helan Gård. If you just go to YouTube and search for Hell and gore. That's H-E-L-L and 
G-O-R-E. Just check it out. Sometime around midsummer, we have the longest night in all year in Sweden, where it almost never gets dark. Far up north, it actually doesn't get dark at all. The sun is up all night. But in the middle of Sweden, we have about one or two hours where it's darker than in the middle of the day, but never pitch black. I still remember walking home during those hours when I was young, and it's something special, all right. Another tradition that some people do during midsummer is that girls should pick seven different types of flowers and put them underneath their pillow. And that night, they would dream about the boy or the man they were going to marry. I remember my parents telling me that we had to be completely quiet during the picking of the seven flowers, otherwise it wouldn't work. But now, when I think back at it, it was probably just another way to keep us from getting worked up and screaming and yelling in the middle of the night. Smart of you there, Mom. And the last thing that might be worth mentioning about Midsummer is that when Christmas is a holiday that is dedicated to family, Midsummer is more of a holiday spent with friends. And of course, in some cases, such as mine, that includes family as well. So happy Midsummer to everyone. And if you want to know more about Midsummer or at least see a funny little video about it, you can Google Swedish Midsummer for Dummies. Thank you again for listening and take care until next time. Goodbye. Hej då.